Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. I'm your host, Tanvir Nasir, CEO of Tanvir Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that now offers both virtual and in-person keynotes and workshops on a variety of leadership topics. To learn more about our leadership education and training services, visit our company's website at tanvirnasir.com. And now, let's get to my guest for this episode, Dr. Timothy Clark. Our environment has a direct impact on our behavior. And if it's fear, if there's pervasive fear on a team or in an organization, that's the first sign of weak leadership in that organization. We know that. Uh, Psychological safety is really the bellwether. It's the central indicator of the overall health of an organization. Over the past few years, there's been a growing interest in the concept of psychological safety in today's workplaces and how this can help with employee productivity and retention. But are we being too limited in how we think about psychological safety in the workplace? And consequently, is this leading us to not only be less effective in driving engagement and collaboration in our organization, but to missing out on untapped growth opportunities and our real ability to innovate? That's some of the areas I'll be exploring with my guest, Dr. Timothy Clark. Tim is the founder and CEO of Leader Factor, a consulting firm that specializes in organizational change, strategic agility, psychological safety, and emotional intelligence. Tim has written five books, including his latest, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation, which is what we'll be discussing over the course of this episode. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Hey, thanks, Tanvir. Good to be with you. So, Tim, the term psychological safety has certainly been garnering a lot of interest in leadership circles for the last few years. And I imagine in light of the various social issues that are now being rightfully pushed into the spotlight, from the issues of income disparity that are so clear to see thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, to addressing systemic racism and all its manifestations as a result of the global embracing of the Black Lives Matter movement, that we are going to see more discussions around creating psychological safety in every workplace. But of course, with such terms comes a lot of interpretation and assumptions about what it means. So could you start us off here, Tim, with a straightforward explanation of what psychological safety means, especially in the context of today's workplaces? Yeah, let's do that, Tanvir. I think, well, as you said, uh, it is blowing up. The concept is blowing up. And I think this is just the beginning. The concept goes back to 1965 when a couple of researchers at MIT, Edgar Schein and Warren Bennis, they coined the term. And the research around it, it was slow moving for a long time. And then really in just the last couple of years, it's exploded. And we've seen a global interest in this concept because the research is so compelling. What the research shows is that there's a very direct relationship between psychological safety and performance. Now, let me back up and let's talk about exactly what it is. So let me give you a long academic clinical definition. So here it is. Uh, Psychological safety means it's not expensive to be yourself. So that's it. That is the essence of what psychological safety means. It's not socially, emotionally, politically, economically expensive to be yourself. 
And so if it's not, then what do people do? Then they are themselves. But if it is expensive, then they are not themselves. And this takes us, Tanvir, to the central research finding that we have around this concept, which is that fear changes people's behavior. Now, this is this is a very, very important, I cannot stress how important this, this finding is, this principle is fear changes people's behavior. That means that wherever we are in any social environment, on a team, in, a, in any kind of organization, our environment has a direct impact on our behavior. And if it's fear, if there's pervasive fear on a team or in an organization, that's the first sign of weak leadership in that organization. We know that. Uh, Psychological safety is really the bellwether. It's the central indicator of the overall health of an organization. So now we can get into, you know, we'll get into greater depth about the natural progression of psychological safety, but I think it's important to start there. It's not expensive to be yourself. I have to tell you, Tim, that I really appreciate this definition of psychological safety because I think for many of us, myself included, when we think of psychological safety, we think really in terms of inclusion, that we feel accepted and respected for who we are without having to change or hide any aspect of our true selves just so we can fit in. And I loved how you pointed out how it's not just about us feeling included, but that we feel safe to learn, that we feel safe to contribute and safe to challenge the status quo, all without fear of us being embarrassed, marginalized or punished in some way. And I think that definition, that explanation, we can appreciate how this is really just opening the door to that process of true psychological safety in organizations and even in our communities. And what I found particularly compelling about the statement is that for myself, I'm not just a visible minority, but where I live here in Quebec, I'm what you call also a linguistic minority. Because here in Quebec, the majority of us are French speakers or what we call here francophones, and I'm an English speaker or what we call an anglophone. So it's interesting how even from my vantage point, I always assumed that when we're talking about psychological safety in organizations or in our communities, it's really just about feeling included. But as I read your book, I realized, no, this really is the baseline. This is the bare minimum, if you will. It is. It is. It's the baseline. And that's why for the last three years, what I've tried to do is to dig into the way that psychological safety really works with human beings and organizations and on teams. And, And what I found is that there's a very consistent pattern, very consistent across four stages, there's this natural progression where we begin with inclusion safety, which I call stage one. And that means, as you said, Tanvir, that you feel included, you feel accepted, you feel that you belong, you feel that you fit in. And that's, that really mirrors the pattern of natural human need. As, as human beings uh, as they interact with new people and new new settings and new organizations, what's the first thing that they're worried about? Do I fit in? That's the very first thing that they they worry about. Once that happens, once we establish inclusion safety, which is the baseline, the foundation, well, there's a lot more work to do. So then we go to stage two, which is learner safety. 
Learner safety means that I can engage in the learning process. I can ask questions. I can give and receive feedback. I can experiment. I can make mistakes. And I'm not going to be embarrassed or, or harshly criticized or ridiculed for it. So that's on top of being included. That's stage two. Then we go to contributor safety, which means, okay, I've learned. I've got skills. I've got knowledge. I've got experience. I want to use those. I want to apply those. I want to make a difference. That's what contributor safety is, to be a full member of the team, to be able to contribute, make a difference, participate in the value creation process. And again, it's a, there's a natural human instinct and desire to want to contribute. That's the first thing that you take a look at. Uh, maybe if you played sports when you were a kid, you played some kind of sport or maybe you learned an instrument or maybe you were in the performing arts or you did something. What, what is the, na the natural desire once you learn something? You want to go use it. You want to go do it. You want to go try it out. It's the same thing with adults. It doesn't matter. So whether you're in school or whether you're in working in professional life, you learn and then you want to go apply what you learn and make a difference. So that's stage three. And then we go to stage four, which is, this is where it gets very interesting and very, very difficult for, for most organizations. Stage four, we call challenger safety, which as you said, Tanvir, means that you feel safe enough to challenge the status quo without risking your personal standing or reputation. Now think about the risk that you take when you do that. So this puts you in the ultimate position of vulnerability and personal risk to challenge the status quo. And some people are pretty comfortable, pretty confident in doing this. Most people are not unless the environment communicates to them very clearly that it's okay. You can do this. Don't be afraid. We want you to weigh in. We want you to lean in. We want you to help us change and get better. Well, it's still very, very difficult for organizations to nurture this kind of environment. So when we cross over from stage three, contributor safety, to stage four, challenger safety, that crossover point, that's what I call the threshold of innovation because it's really in stage four, challenger safety, that's where we innovate. Innovation is, is by its very nature, is subversive of the status quo. It undermines the status quo. We're talking about disrupting it, changing it. And so in order for people to do that, they have to feel safe in, in that process. The social exchange, let me just make this last point here. I think this is very important for people to understand the social exchange when you get to stage four challenger safety is that I will give you candor in exchange for air cover. You need to protect me in the act of being vulnerable and being candid. And if I get air cover from you, then you're going to get candor from me. That's the social exchange, but it's difficult to get all the way to stage four. You know, Tim, one of the things I love to do on my show is I always love to play devil's advocate. And I've had leaders where I present these things that we need to be doing as leaders to improve the dynamics in our organization, the way we engage and empower employees. And there's always that leader in the audience who will say, you know what? Glad I'm checking off all my tick list. I do all those things. Thank you for reinforcing that I'm doing everything right. And you talk to people, their team are like, he doesn't do any of those things. 
right? Yeah, that's right. So before you start thinking and easing back and thinking, oh, good, we encourage people to learn our organization. We encourage autonomy, and we definitely want people to speak up and challenge the status quo so we could be more innovative. The reality is, and we see that in so many studies, it's not happening to any real serious degree in a lot of organizations. So I'd really want to take us through these four stages, starting with the first one, that first stage of inclusion safety. Again, this is where most of us tend to think of when we think of psychological safety. But there's a line you wrote in this chapter that perfectly encapsulates how, as I just said, this is really the baseline and not something we should think of as the only thing we need to aim for or worry about. And you write that inclusion safety is not about worthiness. It's about treating people like people. In fact, you expand on this when you write that to be deserving of inclusion has nothing to do with your personality, virtues, or abilities, nothing to do with your gender, race, ethnicity, education, or any other demographic variable that defines you. There are, at this level, no disqualifications except one, the threat of harm. So on the surface, this seems to be something that should be effortless for leaders to create an organization. And yet when we hear the stories behind the Me Too and the Black Lives Matter movements, in fact, anytime we hear about issues of systemic racism and discrimination, what's clear is that there is a lack of inclusion safety. So why, Tim, is something as simple as treating people as people independent of worthiness an ongoing challenge? And perhaps more importantly, how can we know for sure we are, in fact, promoting inclusion safety in our organization as opposed to simply believing we are? Sure. Well, let's go back to the why question, Tanvir, first. Why do, why do we struggle with this so much? We struggle because of the universal human condition of being insecure. Human beings are insecure. And they want to fit in uh, and they want to matter and they want to be important. So let's go back to the principle of inclusion safety that you touched on. The way that I frame it in the book is to say that worth precedes worthiness. So inclusion safety is based on your worth, your inherent intrinsic worth as a human being. Worthiness comes later. Issues of performance and are you measuring up, that, that comes later. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about inherent worth. So if you're human and you're harmless, then you are entitled to inclusion safety. It's a human right. It's not something that you earn. It's something that you're owed. And think about how much we struggle with this. It's crazy uh, throughout organizations. And we, we have continued to struggle. Now, what, why do we struggle? Well, we have governed our organizations and institutions and teams with, as I call it in the, in the book, junk theories of superiority. We try to justify superiority with all kinds of reasons. So I'm better than you based on my education or my money or my ethnicity or my gender or my athletic prowess or my beauty or my, it's, it goes on and on and on. And all of those theories of superiority are patently false. They're all false. Or I've got a higher rank than you, or I've got more position or title or authority. It, it, it just, or uh, my political ideology is better than you, or my philosophy is better than you. My family's better than you. My neighborhood's better than you. This is what we do. So we create these divisions and these boundaries 
and then uh, we and and then we struggle. So think about what's happening now. Is there is is there any way that you can justify racism? Is there any way that you can justify racism? No, there's not. It's a junk theory of superiority. That's what it is. So when people get insecure, they grasp for some reason to elevate themselves and subordinate other people. And that's what we do. That's why inclusion safety is stage one. It's the baseline. It's the foundation. And why do we continue to struggle? Because we have leaders in organizations that continue to, to perpetuate and model these junk theories. And they tell themselves soothing stories about how important they are and how special they are. And they're a little bit more special than the next guy. Well, that's complete rubbish. But this is what we've been doing for centuries and millennia as human beings. And what's so fantastic, though, Tanvir, about what's happening now is because I've been talking to all kinds of leaders and executives over the last couple of weeks, they are, all of them are conducting an institutional examination of conscience at a deeper level, probably, than they have ever done in their entire lifetimes. And that is a good thing because we've got to get rid of the self-deception that we often swim in, in organizations. It's the only way, until we get honest, we can't overcome these things. And, and so I do think that the good news is that I see more unvarnished examination, more penetrating, more unsparing uh, self-inventory going on right now than I've seen perhaps in my lifetime. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, it's certainly encouraging, and I like to think most of us appreciate these issues as being important, but I don't think we've ever thought of them as being urgent. And I think that's what we're seeing now is it's now shifted from not just being important, but being urgent and combining those two together. Having an issue which is urgent and important is now hopefully giving the necessary focus and attention that's required to address this issue. So now that we've covered this as being the baseline, I'd love for us to shift to look at these other stages you write about as, again, I think many of them are not necessarily front of mind. We think about ensuring we are creating and promoting psychological safety in our organization. And I would love to discuss with you the next stage of psychological safety, what you call learner safety, as one of the leadership keynotes I give is around how leaders can create continuous learning environments in their organization. Now, it's practically become an axiom in today's workplace environments that all employees of an organization, leaders included, have to embrace a learning mindset in order for organizations to become more agile and responsive to the faster pace of change we see in today's world. Now, through my work with various leaders and organizations, I can tell you there's a definite interest in knowing their employees are learning new skills and insights to help the organization be more successful. So... Just as with inclusion safety, how can leaders know if they're taking away learner safety despite being convinced otherwise? And what should they be doing to strengthen this stage of psychological safety in the organization so they are actually creating a learning environment for their employees? I think the first thing that leaders can do, Tanvir, is pay very close attention to the interpersonal dynamics on their teams to see how aggressively and how comfortably 
their team members are learning. Here's what happens. Uh, so, so that would be number one. And then number two is you, you've got to pay very close attention to your patterns of interaction with the people on your team. If you push the fear button, what happens? If you push the fear button, that triggers what we call the self-censoring instinct. And we all have one. And if someone activates our self-censoring instinct, what do we do? We retreat, we withdraw, and we manage personal risk, which is a completely normal and natural thing to do because we're adaptable creatures. That's what happens. So you need to be extremely self-aware and ask yourself, am I pushing the fear button at any time? Because if you do, what happens is you're thrusting your people into a defensive mode of performance. And when they move into a defensive mode of performance, they can't learn very fast. The reason they can't learn very fast is, and this is, we know this from cognitive psychology, learning is both an intellectual process and an emotional process. And you cannot separate the two tracks. They, they are interwoven. One of the case studies that I give in the, in the book, Tambir, is I talk about that in the United States, a student drops out of high school every 26 seconds. Now, why is that? Is it because they can't do the academic work? No. Barring some legitimate learning disability, most all of them can do the academic work. The reason they, they drop out is because they don't feel the support. They're emotionally bruised. They're not encouraged, and so they call it quits. Adults are no different. If you go into any team, just pay attention to what, what I call acts of vulnerability. There's always risk. There's always a little fear. There's some inhibition associated with learning. Learning is has some risk with it, right, as you said. Now, some people are, are pretty confident about that. Others are not. So it's your job as the leader to nurture learner safety. And the way that you do that is that you encourage and you, and you disconnect fear from failure. You disconnect fear from mistakes because those two things don't naturally or necessarily go together, even though often we, we think they do, but they don't. And one of, the, one of the other case studies I give in the book is I talk about this high school teacher. He's a high school calculus teacher. He's one of the best in the world. And he disconnects fear from failure in his classroom to such an extent that the students dive in to the, to, to the, the course material. They dive into solving problems. They make mistakes along the way. They fail along the way. But as he said to me personally, he said, Tim, he said, mistakes, he said, failure is not the exception. It's the expectation. That's how we learn. That's how we do it. Now, to your point, what is the imperative in the 21st century in this context of, of hyper-competitiveness and unforgiving markets? The expectation is learning agility. Learning agility means that you learn at or above the speed of change. So if you're a leader out there, if you're managing a team or an organization of any kind, 
your your goal is that every single one of your people are learning at or above the speed of change. That's the expectation. Anything less than that, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to move into a, a, a learning obsolescence cycle and you will be at risk. And we all know that standing still is career suicide in this context. So if, if you just think about that context, it, it, your, your analysis takes you right back to looking in the mirror and asking yourself the question, am I really nurturing learner safety? Have I disconnected fear from failure? Have I really created that kind of environment? And most people can say, you know what? I got some work to do. I got some work to do, right? Absolutely. And I think it sets us up perfectly to explore that third stage psychological safety, contributor safety, which is actually an interesting one because unlike these previous two, this one's not a right, but it's something we have to earn. That thanks to having that inclusion safety that makes us feel like we're a part of this team, and then the learner safety to grow our skills and expertise, we now want the chance to contribute to the shared purpose of the organization in a substantive or meaningful way. And what's interesting about this stage is its relationship to our gaining greater autonomy over what we do, where the better our contributions become, the more autonomy we gain over what we do. And yet, as many of us know, either from personal experience or hearing about the experience of others, although employees may have the desired skills and abilities to do the work, in fact, they're the very reason we wanted them on our team in the first place, many leaders still tend to minimize the autonomy their employees are given. So. As this is something that's earned, how do we make sure we're offering it at the right time and conversely not limiting it when we shouldn't? It's, that's a fantastic question. And, and there's, not, there's not a formula for this. It's, it's a matter of judgment because we delegate work, right? Uh, and so let's go through kind of a framework for accountability. So all the work that we do, we divide into tasks. A task is a basic unit of work. And so the, 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 the lowest level of, of accountability and delegation is task level accountability. So I give you this task, you complete the task, you come back and you say, hey, I got it done and, and we got it done on time in the right way. And then the boss says, fantastic. And once you have a demonstrated track record of that, then we go up to, to the, the second level of accountability, which is process or project. What's a process? It's a string of related tasks that, that we repeat over and over again. And so then we go and we say, okay, now you're in charge of this process that repeats. Once you demonstrate the ability to do that, do it well and do it reliably, then you've come to mastery there. So then we have our next graduation ceremony and that's our really our last one. And we go to the third level of accountability, which we call outcome level. Outcome means that, you know what? You know how to do it. Uh, you have a demonstrated track record uh, at the task level and the process level. So we're, we're going to empower you and the terms of our engagement are going to shift and we're going to focus on outcome. So if I go to my son and he knows how to, Let's, let's take, he knows how to mow the lawn and he can water and he can fertilize the grass and he can trim and he can do all those things. I'm not going to talk to him about all that anymore. I'm just going to say, Dan, 
my youngest son, I'm going to say, Dan, I want a manicured yard. Make it happen. That's outcome accountability. Now, we're not going to be perfect as managers as we delegate and hold people accountable. But because we have to manage risk, and that's part of our responsibility is to manage risk. But we're, we're, we, what we want to do is we want to put some stretch in it. We want to challenge people. We want to empower them. Now, here's the interesting thing, Tanvir, as we think about this. And I've asked, I think, probably thousands of managers this question at this point. I explain the three, the three levels of accountability, task, process, outcome. And then I ask them this question, at what level of accountability would you like to be managed? 99% of people say outcome. I want to be managed at outcome level. And then I ask, why? Why do you want to be managed at outcome level accountability? And they say, because that's where I, I have autonomy. I have independence. I have creative license. I have latitude. I can do things the way I want. That's exactly right. What outcome level accountability does is it transfers ownership. And when you transfer ownership, that's when the magic happens. Now, not everyone is going to respond beautifully to that, but most human beings want to get to the outcome level. That's where they do their best work. That's where they have career best experiences. That's where they have peak engagement experiences. That's where they go into flow. This is where they shine. This is where the magic happens. And so managers, why would you not want your people to go to that place? You have maximum leverage. You're able to multiply your influence and impact as a leader, which is what leadership is all about. So, so then we have to ask the question, Tanvir, what, so why, if a person has the demonstrated ability to move to greater autonomy, why do we sometimes keep micromanaging them? Why do we hold them back? And I hope your listeners are, are, are thinking about this very carefully. The reason that we hold them back, it's our problem. It's because of our insecurity. It's because of our arrogance, right? I mean, otherwise, why would you, why, why would you hold them back? You wouldn't. You would want maximum leverage in your position as a manager. And yet we still see people chronically micromanaging people. Have you seen this? Oh, I've seen it. And I've had a lot of people share horror stories of to the depths that they've been micromanaging their organization. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most interesting things. And, and so if the person has the ability to go to process level accountability or outcome level accountability, then it's, it's our responsibility and it's our opportunity to take them on that journey. And if we are fighting that, we're fighting ourselves. We've, we've, got a, we've got an ego problem. We've got an insecurity problem. We are full of hubris. Because why would we not do that? If you can't rejoice in the success of your people, you shouldn't be in the leadership business. No, absolutely not. You need to go. You need to go be an individual contributor because you don't get it. You're you're not getting what leadership is all about. 
when you move into leadership, you shift from direct to indirect contribution. And the whole, the name of the game now is you're going to shine through the contribution of other people. And you're going to, you're going to find deep satisfaction in that process. That's going to be your, your deepest form of compensation. And you're going to love doing that. That's what leaders do. So if you haven't made that psychological transition to be able to, to, to rejoice in the success of your people, then you need to back up and you need to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why do I even want to be a manager? And who would even want to be led by me? Right? So you need to go make that transition and you need to, ha- you need to do a little soul searching. So, Tim, now that we've covered the first three stages of psychological safety, I want us to address that fourth stage, psychological safety, challenger safety, where we welcome employees to challenge the status quo because we trust our employees to be pushing these changes because it will allow us to improve what we do and or the way we operate, which is exactly what innovation is. It's disrupting the way things are in favor of something new that creates new value in some way. Of course, as we all know, pushing for change, even if we can see it's for the collective good, can still be hard to get going and face a lot of resistance, which in the case of organizations can lead a lot of talented people to either leave the organization or to shut down and revert to staying at that third stage of psychological safety where the only drive is to have that autonomy to do your work because you provide only the results that are being asked of you. So... I can see why this is the last stage of psychological safety, because pushing for this kind of disruptive change to the status quo is challenging. So what should leaders be doing to ensure that if they reach that third stage of psychological safety, they are creating that safe space for employees to now question and challenge the status quo in order to feel real innovation in their organization? You said something Tanvir, that I want to focus on for just a minute. You said your your talented people are going to want to be change agents. Now, let's think about that for a minute. This is profoundly important on teams and in organizations. Your most talented people, they do want to make a difference. They do want to be change agents. That's why they're here. And if they're not allowed to do that, and by the way, think about all of the talented millennials that are pouring into the workforce. They look at psychological safety as a term of employment. They they expect it. And if if they don't get it, they're going to bounce. And so what we're seeing now across organizations is that if you don't supply psychological safety, if that's not the defining attribute of the culture, you will bleed out your top talent. They're not going to stay. They're going to call timeout and say, hang on a second. Wait a second. What are you guys doing? I came here to contribute. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to contribute. I'm going to learn and I'm going to contribute. I want to make a difference. And so what are we doing here? We're Psychological safety is like, that should be a given. That's the way that these millennials are thinking. So I would encourage all of the listeners to to reflect on this. And how are you going to retain your top talent 
if they, if you don't provide an environment where they feel free and able to take on the status quo, they want to innovate and you can't innovate unless challenger safety is there. Now you, let's go back to the question that you asked Tanvir, which is, so what do you do as a leader? Now, there are many things that you can do. And by the way, uh, we do also have the behavioral guide that goes to the book. It's a companion to the book, and it's a free download that everybody can have access to. But let me just mention a couple of what, what global best practices that are in the behavioral guide, and there are others, but here are a couple of two, couple of them that, that may be helpful. One is, as a leader, you have to pay very close attention to your emotional response to dissent. When someone disagrees with you, when someone pushes on you, or when they bring you bad news, how do you respond? What is your emotional response pattern to being challenged to dissent? If it's not so good, I can tell you that that signal goes out loud and clear to your team. That's the signal that they're going to pay attention to more than any other factor. And that signal will, will either give them permission to challenge the status quo, because basically what you're doing is you're setting a norm. And you're saying dissent is accommodated or it is not accommodated. Acts of vulnerability are accepted or they are not accepted. You make that crystal clear in your emotional response to these tough issues. So that's number one. You will never achieve challenger safety until you start developing superb emotional intelligence. So now why is that? Because emotional intelligence is, it's your conduit of influence. It's the way that you convey your knowledge and your skills and your experience. So, EQ really delivers IQ. It's your delivery system. And that's what people are going to be paying attention to. So number one is try to start cultivating superb emotional intelligence and make sure that you're responding favorably and with encouragement to dissent. Now, here's a second global best practice that I'll pass along, and that is that when your team is addressing a decision or a potential course of action or an initiative or a priority, and you're trying to figure things out, take half your team and say, okay, you, 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 and you, you are now the loyal opposition. We are assigning you to dissent. We want you to tell us why this is a dumb idea, what's wrong with it where it's flawed, where it will break, why it won't work. This is your job. Now, here's what happens. If you assign dissent officially, formally, from the beginning, what it does is it replaces personal risk with institutional permission. Does that make sense? So, Tanvir, if, if, if we say to you, you're going to be our loyal opposition, and we want you to challenge. It's your assignment to challenge. When we give you that assignment, it takes most of your personal risk away because we've replaced it 
with institutional permission, you're, you're going to do your job. Now you may still be, you may still feel tentative and, 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 and be fearful about it a little bit, but you're, you're going to do it and you're going to get better at it. And as you do, and as it's accepted and as you're supported and encouraged in that process, you're going to do it even more. It'll, it'll come more naturally. So there's this expectation of dissent and we institutionalize it by making it an assignment. So those are a couple of global best practices that I would point out that I, I have seen uh, profound effects with uh, on teams. So uh, hopefully that's helpful. Well, I think it's very helpful. And I think, Tim, it's clear to our listeners that if we want to feel true innovation in an organization where we're tapping into the full creativity and insights of all of our employees, we need to attain this fourth stage of psychological safety. But to do so, we need to start at the beginning with making efforts to ensure we're creating inclusion safety in our workplaces. So to wrap up our conversation today, what do you see, Tim, as being the biggest challenge leaders face in terms of addressing psychological safety in the workplace? And conversely, what do you see as being the biggest opportunities that arise when we commit to making this effort? Well, I think the, the biggest opportunity certainly varies depending on who you are as a leader and what's happening in your organization or on your team. I would encourage every leader to to do a very careful and thorough and accurate assessment of where you are. You've got to under you've, you've got to get a baseline for where you are in terms of the level of psychological safety because as we as we said it's not a it's 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 not a binary proposition. It's not something that either you have or you don't have. It's a matter of degree. So where are you? And you can you can do that through interviews. You can do that through I mean, we have four stages a team survey, but you've got to know where you are. If you don't, if you don't have bearing points to comprehend your position, you cannot make progress. So you've got to know where you are. And I, I guess a big, I, I think a big opportunity is simply to start implementing some of these very simple behaviors that have such a, make such a big difference. And I guess the other thing that I would say is that you, you have to realize that as a leader, you are not a neutral player. You either lead the way or get in the way. And that's, that's just what's going to happen by virtue of the fact that you are a leader by virtue of your position you're going to lead the way or get in the way. And, and that deserves some very careful reflection to think about your patterns. And if you are nurturing psychological safety, or if you're getting in the way, are you pushing the fear button at any time? Are you activating people's self-censoring instinct? These are, these are things that you need to reflect on and you need to have some pretty candid conversations with your team members, both together and individually. So um, that's a, that's a bit of encouragement. That it is. Tim, I want to thank you both for coming on my show and for writing this book, which does a fantastic job of bringing clarity, not only to understanding what psychological safety really is and how we can go about enabling it through our leadership, 
but the collective benefits we stand to gain by creating workplace conditions that allow all employees to not just feel included, but to bring their very best to the table so as to challenge all of us to deliver and create our very best. Thanks, Tanvir. It's been a real pleasure. So I hope this conversation has helped give you not only a better understanding of the nature of psychological safety and how we're really only scratching the surface in terms of addressing this need, but also how leaders can go about making sure they are in fact creating a workplace environment that brings out the best in everyone they lead. To learn more about Tim's book and his work on psychological safety, as well as some articles of mine that build on some of what we discussed, please check out the show notes for this episode on my website at tavinasir.com slash LBC. And that's a wrap for this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, brought to you by Tavinasir Leadership. If you're looking for more insights on how to improve your leadership going forward, I invite you to check out our company's website at tavinasir.com to see how we can help both through virtual and in-person leadership keynotes, workshops, and training events. And if you enjoyed listening to Timothy and I talk about the importance of leaders creating these four stages of psychological safety, I'd appreciate your support for this show by sharing it with your colleagues and employees. A real easy way to do this is to simply share our podcast page at tavernasir.com LBC. On our podcast page, we have a built-in media player that will allow you to listen to every episode of our show. And you'll also find on this page links to subscribe to our show so you can catch our latest episodes when they're released on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and Google Podcasts. And with that, I'm Tanvi Nasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Leadership Biz Cafe.